Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another big week on Wall Street. Washington imposes 500 new sanctions on Russia. France weighs budget cuts. Leadership changes at Boeing over 737 MAX program problems. BAE Systems, Garmin, Hensoldt, Hexel, MTU, and Rolls-Royce report earnings as Hungary buys Gripen fighters, sending a positive signal that Budapest will soon uh, be the final approval needed for Sweden to join the Atlantic Alliance. Joining me today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Chusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It wouldn't be a weekend uh, unless we were uh, convening. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off another uh, big market week. Tell us how the group uh, performed and why, right? Because, I mean, obviously we had some some earnings uh, and other uh, news flow that was uh, shaping this, right? I mean, we had the Biden administration impose 500 new sanctions. Um, anyway, walk us through the dynamic uh, on, on how the group performed on the market. Yeah, it's interesting. The S&P was up 2.2% um, in the week. And and you can conveniently break down uh, the A&D world um, like this, like kind of the haves, the have-nots, and somewhere in between. Uh, this week, uh, the aftermarket names were really the, the outperformers. Heiko was up almost 3%. Transdime was up almost 4%. Now, let's throw GE, General Electric, in that. Uh, it was up 3% aftermarket business in aerospace. The have-nots were the businesses uh, more tied to OE or the ones that have problems. So, you know, Boeing was down uh, compared to the market. Uh, it, was, it was down 1.6%. So, compared to the S&P, it underperformed by almost 4%. Uh, Raytheon Technologies was down 1.8. Spirit Aerosystems was down 2.3. So that's the bucket of you know companies that um, you know have something wrong, right? Uh, engines or airframe or otherwise. And then in in the middle, um, you had the defense names. Lockheed was up a percent. GD was up 1.3 uh, percent. Textron was up 1.3 percent. Northrop was up about half a percent. So relative to the market, they underperformed, but um, in absolute terms, they were up. Uh, WTI crude uh, was 76 and a half. I'll give you one guess, Vago. What was Brent at five, 81.5? Uh, and uh, the 10 year yield was at 4.3%, but has been inching inching higher, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we see the, the 10 year yield uh, slowly climbing back towards, uh, towards five, uh, given uh, the economy seems robust. Uh, and, um, I don't think my and you know Ron's unofficial opinion. I don't think the Fed's going to be cutting anytime soon, uh, but that's a debate in the market. So we'll right. we'll see what happens. Uh, and I, I I do think it's it's kind of an interesting debate, right? I mean, if the economy continues to grow the way it's growing, then they're going to want to uh, cool it down. And I'm sorry, I was muted. I was going to say I said five dollars. Uh, so uh, even even uh, uh, the bag of hammers can be taught a trick or two. But, but, um, but here, let me jump. Let me jump in on that. I don't know if they're going to want to cool it down. I mean, the economy's growing, but it's not. Crazy. Right. So if you have a, a growing economy and interest rates, you know, four and a half, five percent, and you know, we've talked about this before. My favorite chart, the, the five thousand year interest rate right. chart. Five percent interest rates isn't particularly high. It's not particularly low. It's just sort of middling. Um, if you can hold interest rates there and still have the economy do well, that does give you, um, uh, when you want to call it, ammunition for when you right. really do need to cut rates. Right. So. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what the Fed ultimately does, but you know, their their caution in not cutting, I, I think, is at this point pretty prudent. 
we had an unprecedented uh, economy fantasy land that we were living in for a while. And we regarded that as being normal as opposed to it being actually abnormal. Um, Sash, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the group's uh, performance in Europe, uh, some concerns. Uh, you know, the good news is almost everybody is spending more money on on defense, and it looks like many nations are going to surpass 2% uh, GDP. But uh, the good news is, for example, uh, Boris Pistorius uh, in uh, Germany is finding a way to actually deploy the, the cash approved some two years ago, the Titan vendor, the 100 billion uh, euro fund. On the other hand, some concerns uh, about uh, in France, that they're going to go from sort of planing uh, the budget, right, making small shavings uh, of money, and in the face of former revolts and a whole bunch of other things, uh, maybe transitioning to sort of the chainsaw uh, as uh, uh, a piece in, in La Tribune uh, sort of sort of laid out. What what's what's what are sort of the key drivers? Uh, obviously, there also was were some European earnings, and we'll get to that in 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 a moment. But kind of walk us through uh, the the dynamics of the market and how the group performed against it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, we've take our, our view has been for a long time that the further away you are as a European nation from Russia, you know, you you, you can take any point on the Russian border, but it, it works pretty well. The further away you are from Russia, broadly, the the less you feel threatened. Um, and so, one of the reasons why the UK defence budget hasn't turned up as much as it should do has been that. You know, the UK is 1,500 nautical miles away from most Russian stuff, and therefore Russia doesn't have the same sort of cut through, and what Russia's doing in Ukraine doesn't have the same sort of cut through as, as it does in um, you know, most of Eastern Europe, Poland in particular, the Baltic states, Scandinavia, and so forth. Um, that's definitely a case in the three southwestern European countries, France, Spain, and then southern, uh, and then Italy as well. They are a long way away from uh, from most things Russian, and they don't feel terribly threatened by it. And it's very, very interesting. The you know the uh, the, the comment you came up with about um, the the French budget, and indeed you know that maps straight onto the French defence budget. There's not much of a sense of urgency in in France. President Macron, straight after the uh, invasion of Ukraine, talks about moving France onto a war economy, and two years on hasn't happened. Now, right. you know, I don't feel proud of the fact it hasn't happened in the UK either, but but we didn't say we were going to move on to a war economy, um, right. uh, whereas France did. And it's very, very noticeable. Look at share prices. Um, the two, You know, if you look at European um, aerospace and defence stocks, just this year, civil stocks are up 9%, defence stocks are up 21%. The two, two of the biggest laggards, in um, you know, in either respects, are Dassault Aviation up two percent and Thales up one percent, right. and what that tells you is the market doesn't think that Fra that France gets it. Um, we don't think France gets it. We don't. We don't think there's much of a sense of of urgency, and I think because uh, President Macron has at various stages tried to act as an intermediary or an interlocutor uh, with. President Putin, there's sort of a feeling that you know they're not really that engaged in the Europe, you know, uh, Europe's struggle against uh, against Russia in in Ukraine. Um, that may be unfair, but the market is telling you that that's what that's what they they say about the stocks. And until the French defense budget genuinely goes up, and they start spending on stuff that has a direct effect on Ukraine. I mean, remember we talked about the the aid package a couple of weeks ago. 
Okay, it's a couple of billion a year. Whoopie do. A couple of billion buys you a few tens of thousands of shells. Um, and you know the odd missile. None of the European countries are spending enough, but but France isn't spending enough either. So, um, yeah, Fr France is. I mean, you could argue France is its own problem because two of its most important stocks are uh, and defence companies are significantly underperforming the rest of their European peers. Um, uh, how how long is it going to take before that turns around? I would think really quite a long time. I mean, you know, the, the problem if you uh, to take Ron's analogy, the haves and the have-nots. I would say what you've got is the difference between. I mean, you've you've got distance. Distance matters, but also you've got the distance. The difference between the threatened and the appeasers. And uh, the threatened are ramping up their defence budgets anywhere in Scandinavia, anywhere in Eastern Europe. The appeasers are, you know, wondering whether we can come to a deal or not. What What is the what, what I'm what I'm having trouble with is, you know, um, and and uh, Richard uh, start us off on this. Um, you know, two years ago, we said, well, it'll take us about three years to be back in production for some of these weapons. And that's does not appear to be the case, right? This is a little bit like a mirage where every couple of years, it's still another couple of years out. And at some point, it just indicates to the world you're not particularly serious, right? It was, at first it was supply chain issues. Uh, now, you know, and, and clearly there were supply chain issues and obviously uh, Congress not approving funding and living from one continuing resolution to another. Ron, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, and because I should have asked you at the very top about what kind of impact that's having, I suspect maybe not as big of an impact as it should have. But what are, what, why, why is this entire ecosystem, uh, Richard, still moving not nearly as quickly as it would, given the magnitude of an aggressor that continues to threaten Western um, nations and uh, NATO nations, continues to assassinate uh, people on their soil. Always a little bit of a no-no, especially when you brag about it in public. Um, and is actually 100% committed, and its intelligence services are gotten have gotten better at undermining democracies everywhere. I mean, what what what's what's the holdup here? in terms of actually being able to deliver stuff because you're a student of history, like we've been able to move actually remarkably fast until a couple of decades ago. But even, even during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, we moved relatively fast. What whiskey tango Foxtrot? Whiskey tango Foxtrot indeed. I mean, there's so many issues at play, you know, first of all, um, it, in the U S of course, you've got a, well, you've got a big chunk of the governing apparatus, particularly Congress, that uh, might just be okay with a Putin-compliant uh, future. That's a real issue. Uh, so, indeed, money is, from a political will standpoint, uh, a bit of a problem here. Um, and yeah, obviously, that's showing up most apparently with the Ukraine aid bill and the Taiwan and Israel aid bills being associated um, Europe is simply a lot more complicated. You know, you've got a decision to be made. It's not just, ah, raise defense. It's, you know, obviously that doesn't exist in a macroeconomic vacuum. You know, you've got to make a decision. Are you going to borrow more? And indeed, allow countries within the EU to borrow more because there are, you know, strictures on that. Uh, or are you going to cut elsewhere? Deeply unpopular chainsaw, as we said before. Um, you know, or, <laughs> or what? You know, there need to be very, very 
tough decisions made, it's not really clear that people were ready for that. But having said that, you know, even with the money that has been provided, and, you know, I can think of no better illustration than Dasso's Raphael fighter, as we've discussed many times before, the cash there is coming from outside Europe. They still are having a hard time scaling up. And that's just because of the increasingly complicated nature of the defense industrial base. This is not, as you say, you know, years ago, converting GM car plants to you know, Jeeps and tanks. The nature of modern defense equipment has just gotten infinitely more complicated. And so, you know, the one thing they teach you in forecasting school is, uh, oh, just say 18 to 24 months, that's safe. <laughs> and we're sort of stuck in this <laughs> dilated time universe where, you know, it was 18 to 24 months and now it's 18 to 24 months. And I think in 18 to 24 months, it might be 18 to 24 months. You know, it's just it's beyond anyone's um, understanding just how complex this is. And I keep coming back to my you know, trip to Tucson about a year ago, you know, the town that used to be everyone's favorite, you know, place that you send your mother-in-law for a swap meet or something. And it's now just the land of cranes building missile factories. Okay. Then you realize what goes into those missiles and there are cranes there too. And the raw materials that go into those, you know, <laughs> warheads and seekers and whatever else. And you realize this isn't 18 to 24 months. It never was. Uh, if we are determined and we provide the cash necessary, which again, politically is highly problematic, then we can begin to see resolution in the middle of the decade and beyond. But there are so many big questions getting to that goal. And and is this a case of sort of go slow to go fast, right? Put the mechanisms in place and then go much, much faster, as some in DOD have suggested? Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. But again, there's that political uncertainty. You know, when you have right. budget unpredictability, people are unwilling to make those full throttle massive investments. See also the F-35 program, you know, it still right. hasn't been approved for full rate production. Maybe people involved are unwilling or unable to make the investments needed so that you can go slow and then go fast. We really don't know. Um, and I understand the uncertainty because, again, politics. Well, and the upgrade is what's uh, slowing things down, right? I mean, the Air Force does not want to take delivery of airplanes that subsequently have to get uh, upgraded. Um, uh, Sash, over to you for a quick uh, point, and then I want to go uh, to Ron to get his uh, sense on this, because he's been tracking it, I think, even better than uh, anybody else from a U.S. context, but go ahead. Yeah, look, I, I'm going to make two very quick points. I mean, one, that F-35 thing, that's a classic example of peacetime thinking. They're thinking about the state of their fighter fleet um, you know, in five years, 10 years time. Um, if we are, you know, much closer to war than we think, you just need fighters. And don't worry about the uh, the state they're going to be in because you'll lose a ton of them. Um, uh, you know, look, look at the Ukrainians, look at the Russians. You, fighters right. are an expendable item. So whether it's at, at you know, um, uh, at state three, four, five, or 93, doesn't actually matter. It turns out that, how capable a combat aircraft is doesn't matter a great deal over a very, very heavily air defended area. Some of them get lost because of bad luck and some of them don't because of because of good luck. Um, and some of them do exactly what they were meant to do on the tin and um, come home and, and you're very happy. But, you know, the US Air Force is thinking peacetime. Um, they have to stop thinking peacetime if they think that this is the aircraft they're going to want. Just in terms of, of lead times, and I, I think Rich is absolutely right, you know, everyone says 18 to 24 months because it's easy. It's also bullshit. Um, everything takes like, you know, putting together a new rocket motor factory is a two to three year process. The factory and then it's another year before you get the stuff coming out. And you can build an artillery plant for ammunition 
on a near an existing plant in a year. Ryan Rosal is doing that in Nunturis. But if you do it somewhere else, where it is a completely green field, that is two years for the plant, and then the first rounds start coming out, and it probably takes you a year to, to ramp up. So the easy wins are to double shift or triple shift. Charles Woodburn, CEO of BA Systems, talked about that this week. And by double shifting, triple shifting, you can double your production comfortably within a year of simple items. But once you want to go further than that, and you're talking about new plants, then it's three, four years, plus, plus, plus. And governments are just not spending on that at the moment. They are talking a bit of a talk, but they're definitely not walking the walk. The orders for new plants, a new missile plant, a new rocket motor plant, a new seeker head plant, and everything that goes with it, I can't see them. Um, I, I, I still think all of this can move dramatically more quickly uh, than it's moving, right? Tesla and a major automaker in one year produces a gigantic uh, commercial factory that is pretty sophisticated to build uh, vehicles, which are not unsophisticated uh, in, in their production either, right? I mean, there are ways to do this, but it, it takes commitment and money. The other thing that I would say about the U.S. Air Force is I think you have to look at they are interested in combat capability. I just think that they may be interested in very different combat capability and to try to field it in faster and larger quantities. Some NGADs controlling many more collaborative combat aircraft, as, as we uh, discussed. Uh, Ron, uh, we're on a little bit of a short time leash with you. You're with us for about another uh, 20 or so minutes before, unfortunately, you've, you've got to go. What's your sense on where we are on the facilitization, on the spending, because if of uh, and the development and fielding of capabilities, because you know we've been talking about this a lot, and every time I go to a session with senior defense folks, either on or off the record, they're talking about it being another couple of years before we're delivering anything, and I mean at the rate at which we need to support Ukraine, we're not getting there, and it it seems to me it's not illegitimate to ask. What the hell has been going on over the last two years? So it either indicates that you're unable to do it or you're not interested in doing it. Well, the, the one thing that nobody mentioned was the labor force. And the reality is, and we've seen this across the sector, and it, it might be different in Europe. I'd be interested to hear what Sash has to think about that but or what he knows about that. Um, when you look at the workforce in A&D broadly, um, pre and post COVID, it changed dramatically. Um, just a great example, um, just kind of a current statistic, but, but you can, you can, you know, apply this across, um, you know, the sector. So one, you know, the IAM 751 um, represents Paul at ballpark, you know, 30,000 or so machinists in the Puget Sound region. Before COVID, uh, 75% of them had more than six years experience. That six-year number is an important one for them because that's when they're fully penetrated in their pay grade per hour, right. hourly rate. Post-COVID, um, a full half of them had less than six years, and many of those less than three. Um, when you look at Huntington Ingalls, um, this is an interesting statistic, um, just retaining people. There's as many people they hire leave. So when you look across the sector, um, Retaining people, hiring people, retaining people, training them to the point where they're productive has been a, a humongous challenge. So when you when you layer that on top of the political challenges, so on and so forth, it it gets pretty untenable, pretty pretty quick, right? Um, you know better than anybody. I mean, a master pipe fitter in a shipyard takes five years. Well, if you can right. only keep 
you know, someone around for, for 18 months or so, you're never going to get any master pipe fitters. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and, and you, you, I would imagine if you went to Tucson when, you know, when Richard was out there, there probably, um, you know, lots of you know, opportunities for employment and so on and so forth. And what you're competing with is, um, a generation, I would argue that isn't of the mindset that, Hey, you know, like the post-World War II generation where, you, you know, you get the job, it's a career, you're there for 30 years, you retire, you get a pension, you get a pin. They don't think that way. Um, right. And you know, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, that across the entire industry is how do you, you you maintain labor and talent? It's it's a you know I think it's it's I mean I know I don't think I know it's an issue it's a problem and it makes everything we're talking about much more complicated. Let me uh, quickly uh, bring you in. Uh, we're about a week uh, away from I think what's called a staged government shutdown. Uh, right. So it's not all of government. It would roll from department to a dep department unless we get the spending measures. Then um, it you know, there are those who say that, yes, there'll be some form of Ukraine measure. Uh, but others are saying, actually, there are a whole bunch of reasons why there might not actually be a Ukraine measure, in which case, the you know, it would be up to the administration to find creative ways of doing this. Uh, Dr. Dov Zakheim, former Pentagon controller, who's a regular on our Washington roundtable, has said, you know, we, we should be doing uh, lend-lease. Uh, lending or leasing equipment to Ukrainians, doing it in large numbers, and then forgiving the the debt, you know, something that allows us to buys us a little bit of time. Uh, but it is apparently within the purview of 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 um, uh, the administration to do that. From 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 your standpoint, how is the market perceiving both of these dynamics? Before we have to shift to a lot of Boeing related news that we should be chewing through. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a good question. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the defense stocks underperformed the market, but they were up, right? So they were sort of in that tweener group in between the haves and have-nots. Um, and 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 you know, kind of. So what 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 can you read in that? Let me let me frame it as a question. Um, I'll ask everybody on the call this. Um, so the day that the Boston Marathon was bombed, um, what did the S and P five hundred do? Right. So answer is it closed at new highs that day, meaning. So what's the point here? There's been so much, you know, so many machinations on the Hill around the budget, around the Ukraine. The market just gets used to it. Right. So I don't, I don't think the market is, um, you know, there's no surprises here. Uh, and, and I think broadly, you know, the investor base is just kind of middling on defense because of up oh, because of what's going on and what's been going on for a long time. Um, and then you layer on top of it pretty much every defense contractor out there agreed to some form of fixed price something or other some form of fixed price development and they're all they're all getting hit on that and um you know be that as it may um it's kind of put a little bit of a cap on um how excited investors are for defense but you know i don't, I don't think anybody's reading going to read a lot into this you know, it, you know my guess would be if we had a partial government shutdown it probably wouldn't be reflected that strongly in the stocks because we've seen it before you know, you know, once the market, you know, kind of sees one of these things, it's not surprised by them again. And, you know, given, you know, how many continuing resolutions and headlines and this and that and noise and extremism on both sides and blah, 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 blah. I mean, the market just kind of, you know, it's just at that point, it just becomes, you know, noise. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. 
Um, let's uh, quickly go uh, around the horn on any of, of those uh, elements. Sash, if you want to take a bite at that, whether on the manpower side of things uh, and then Richard and then want to get to uh, Boeing uh, and earnings, uh, certainly on the U.S. side of the equation before uh, Ron turns into a pumpkin on us, whichever one of you wants to grab this uh, as we go quickly around uh, the horn. Yeah, just, I'm just very quickly. Look, manpower is an issue, but European European companies tended to keep more of their um, salaried labor force during uh, the pandemic because the furlough schemes kicked in much sooner. Uh, and we, you know, we're very, very generous. And in particular in, in um, France and Germany, there were incredibly generous schemes to put even people who were working um, down onto uh, effectively short term working, building up a sort of, you know, holiday banks and so forth. Um, and that kept the companies in probably better nick in terms of uh, employment than anything else. But I do think there's a, I think there's a problem. Um, you know, the peacetime thinking is not just a, uh, an issue for governments. Companies don't terribly trust governments. Governments say we, we want a lot of capacity. But if they don't put the put the contracts in place, actually, you know, uh, say what they want. Companies don't trust them. They don't trust, you know. Any defence ministry, any government is only as good as the next election and probably not that good. So um, they're not going to put in place brand new big factories uh, anywhere uh, across Europe um, without uh, hard cash. Richard, you want to take a bite at this? Well, just to say, you know, obviously the big external complication is labor force and resource availability in the context of the broader economy. And it's been an unusual tear, particularly for the U.S., you know, the recession that did not happen. And God knows, you know, there's even been, well, maybe, you know, the collapse of the metaverse will result in a tech slowdown and that'll free up some tech workers. And that didn't happen. Nothing ever seems to happen. Right. Things are unbelievably tight. So, A, will that change? And B, if it does, will that help? Um I think if it did help, if it did happen, be it it would help a lot. I'm not so sure it happens. You know, my favorite macro commentary written over the past few years, Mohammed El Arian, um, in in foreign affairs, said basically this is the defining condition of our economy. For some time now, we've been governed solely by a question of demand. This is now an era where we have to worry about supply, and that might just be true for labor. So, I am concerned. Uh, about this not changing anytime soon, I guess is where hey, I'm going. It, it, his, historically, uh, first, the, the United States has to make the aid available to its ally and partner because either Putin wins or we win. This is kind of a binary thing and people are trying to split the baby on, you know, if they just give up their land and it'll be okay. Um, you know, ultimately, we have an obligation to support them because this is a guy who is at war with us first. Second, the United States government has always taken a proactive role, both in how it spends money, how it structures policy, uh, and what are the tax credits and other things that have to happen. After Sputnik happened, we put tax incentives in, we put investment in, in educating and training a workforce that actually eventually put uh, not just uh, man on the moon, but also then uh, served as a technological engine from the for the United States at a time when it was already opponent uh, a potent uh, technological uh, and global industrial engine. I, I think it's that simple. And for us to be sort of screwing around, like, well, you know, we'll we'll give certain incentives or industry will do this. I mean, at the end of the day, industry is in it for profit and a degree of profit that didn't exist back then uh, in in terms of 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 returns. So at some point, you have to figure out what is the strategic interest of the nation. And I don't think we can wait 25 years to produce the kind of engineering talent 
uh, and scientific and manual talent that we need. I, I, I mean, I just think this is bizarre. Um, it's, it's just a stunningly bizarre way of doing business. And we're just sort of sitting there and folding our hands and saying, well, you know, that, well, that's it. You know, somehow you the know, market if I is going to help us add, scratch this itch. You saw Carlos Del Toro, the other, I think it was about a week ago, talking uh, about investor returns and what it meant. And he was frustrated with them. I mean, does this become more of a drumbeat that, you know, we're sick of returns to shareholders rather than investment in the future? And I'm not saying right or wrong. Uh, just does this become a dynamic of the, you know, the, the political defense uh, marketplace, if you will? Nobody wants to be seen as anti-industry. I think the criticism of the Navy secretary was there was a more nuanced way to express that, which folks look at, for example, how Bill LaPlante is having that discussion and how Frank Kendall is having that discussion, even if uh, the, the sentiment may be very similar. All right, Ron, uh, start us off uh, on, uh, given that this is a topic that we've discussed many times uh, before, right? From the industry's perspective, I don't know what else to do with my cash. And so I'm buying back shares and, and the street likes it. Uh, especially if you don't let me do M&A and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, uh, Ron, uh, leadership change at Boeing after 18 years uh, with the company. Ed Clark is stepping down as the vice president of 737 MAX uh, operations and, and as well as the Renton facility. He's going to be replaced by Katie Ringgold, uh, who uh, runs the 737 delivery operation. Elizabeth Lund, who is now the VP for all commercial uh, airplane programs, uh, was named as the company's head of quality. And she in that role is going to be replaced by Mike Fleming. Um, what, what do all of these changes mean, uh, ultimately and do, or, you know, are they positive? Do they move a needle? Some of these are very, all of them are accomplished people, right? I mean, we should say that, uh, going, you know, even if there was a tough turn in the barrel, right. What, what, what does this mean? Not much, honestly. Um, and I, I think it's, it's game of Thrones at the top of the company and, um, I think some executives, you know, did some things to preserve their own seats. Um, I, don't, I don't think it means a thing. Um, Elizabeth Lund's very, very qualified individual. She does a great job, um, you know, elevating her to the, the quality role. That, that's fine. Um, does this change the culture of the organization? No. Uh, I mean, I think Richard has waxed on very elegantly about uh, a culture change that's needed. You know, that's not what we're seeing. So I don't, I don't think it really means a heck of a lot, honestly. Um, you know, and somebody had to be sacrificed. Somebody was. Um, did it go high enough? Um, we questioned that in the note we wrote. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think so. Um, you know, you know, culture starts at the top uh, and goes down, and you, know, you got to cultivate it. Um, and you know, the the person that was sacrificed, were you know, they a culture carrier or whatever. I don't know, but you know, it's I don't look at it as as much of anything to be honest with you. I'd be really interested to hear what Richard has to say. Uh, Richard, take it away. Yeah, of course. You know, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you appoint a position, even for a qualified person, that just says quality and that's some sort of magic wand, that's just bizarre. And I think there must be maybe 1% of the customer and investor community that, that uh, thinks something has changed. I mean, you've got to reverse decades of damage, both to how they treat their workforce and their supply chain and their supply chain's workforce. Uh, that's going to take time. And that, that too, of course, is, needs to be accompanied by the closely linked cultural change that Ron talks about. And that indeed does come from the top. So <laughs> the idea that this couple of superficial changes means anything is just completely bizarre. 
Um, you know, <laughs> I, I also call attention to Ron's use of the phrase people preserving their jobs at the top. Uh, how long can this keep going? Right. Because that's been sort of the name of the game for behind a number of these personnel changes for years now. And to this day, I get calls from reporters, some of whom are new to the beat and don't know. So, well, Dave Calhoun seems to think that, you know, it's it's an emergency. So he came in and, and needs to stabilize the ship. It's been three years of that. Uh, <laughs> that's a little longer than three years, actually. So actually, it's close to four, maybe. I'm kind of lost track, but that's that's the classic. Well, we're at war. We've always been at war, so we can't do anything to change our society because of the war. It's just a bit bizarre. Uh, Sash, uh, you're... Uh, why, why don't we let let you be the final arbiter? It's it's two votes to none. Uh, go ahead, take it away, and see. Yes. You know, and what, what do you make of all this? Actually, I'm I'm going to pass on this because I think Richard and Ron are, are, are way closer to the situation than I am. Um, having oh. stuck the landing, you're gonna uh, you're gonna you're gonna sit this one out. All right, I'll yeah, I'll be I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back to back to you in a moment, uh, Sash. Uh, Ron, uh, we got you for another couple of minutes. Uh, walk us through earnings, uh, right? I mean, we had some companies uh, report. Uh, you know, just sort of walk us through what were some of the bigger muscle movements that that we we saw and and that you thought were interesting. Yeah, I'd say maybe you know there was there was three that had some significant takeaways. Um, Hexel reported this past week. Garmin reported this past week, and Aircap did. Um, and you know, on the surface, Aircap's numbers look good, but I think there's a worry over what they call you know net um, uh, net spread, basically you know, what what you're getting for your leases. And um, I think there's a, a broad misunderstanding in the market that you know the lessors are um, you know leases that are uh, for airplanes that are kind of going out today were written you know in principle two years ago when things weren't so great. So, you know, be it that we're in a very strong market for narrowbody aircraft today, we'll start to see that flow through in the lease spreads over, you know, the next year or two. Um, so I think the market's, you know, is thinking about that a little bit wrong. So I, I think that's interesting. Um, that's why their shares were down a bit. Um, and then Garmin had absolutely fantastic numbers. And that's a, that's a name that a lot of people like to hate. So the, the, the shares did quite well. And then uh, Hexel reported, and there was you know worry over um, their margins, right? I mean, their their volumes seem to be going up, but their margins aren't going up in in tune with that, and that always kind of gets people uh, worried. So we'll we'll see what's going on there. I think you know broadly they're in fine shape, but uh, in margins, you know, you just you know they they kind of are what they are, and they have variations quarter to quarter and year to year. It's just I think that's just part of what's going on there. But um, yeah, that was probably the biggest stuff. You know, most of the the big earning stuff is behind us, and uh, maybe maybe one other comment is um, as you as you think about this year coming into this year, I think a lot of investors were you know very um, enthused about the OEMs, less so about the aftermarket. And basically, when that door blew off, uh, Alaska Airlines airplane that kind of threw that investment thesis on its head, and that's why you're seeing the aftermarket plays play so well. Uh, and at least in the U.S., the stuff tied to OE not doing quite as well. Um, so we'll see where it all goes, but you know, our thesis coming into the year was that you'd want to be long aftermarket and maybe a little light on OEM just because expectations were so high. And you know, interestingly enough, that kind of played out in the first two weeks of the year. So we'll see where it all goes from here. But, um, I, I think that's probably the, you know, the most important stuff this week. Uh, let me ask you one, uh, last quick thing, uh, a shared, uh, FT, uh, story with everybody, um, that business travel 
may actually be declining. Companies are changing their policies. Uh, more people are blending leisure. I know I'm not traveling nearly as much as I used to travel um, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, is this something we're going to be paying closer attention to? Right. I mean, in your case, you have to meet face to face with investors. Uh, you know, uh, Richard, uh, you're, you know, a, a strategic uh, analyst, although Sash, I think you're traveling a little bit less than you used to travel. Uh, um, you know, is this is this something that's going to have a meaningful impact, especially since many airplanes, especially on the international side of things, are, are half the airplane now is business seating? Well, I mean, I guess the, the way I think about this is, and, and not a great answer, but I think it really kind of depends on the industry and what and what you're doing. I'm very reticent to say, hey, it's different now because it never is ultimately. I mean, for all the reasons that we all traveled before, we're all traveling again. And in my own specific case, in March, there's one day where I actually have to be in three different places uh, on two different continents. Um, so, you know, I can't cut myself in half or clone myself. Um, so yes, not, not, not yet. Right. <laughs> not yet. Um, but you know, so the, the kind of the way I think about it, um, and again, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what the other, other guys have to say, um, you know, code's in the rearview mirror. Um, and we're getting back to kind of more of a normal business cadence. I can't tell you the number of people I talk to about, you know, expectations and being in the office and so on and so forth. And it seems like we're settling in and, not five days a week in the office, but maybe three to four. And, you know, pe people are traveling to conferences and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, maybe the, you know, the, you know, the tone and tenor of business travel is a little different than it was before, because it's always kind of changing. Um, but, you know, is it really dramatically different? I, I don't honestly think so. Probably the biggest difference for, for me uh, and, and people in my orbit, and it's probably the same in other orbits, I'm not going to China anytime soon, right? So I'll probably spend less time in Asia than I used to. Um, of the four of us, I'm not sure who went to the Singapore Air Show, but um, you know, I no, yeah, none of us, you know. So that's different because um, maybe I would have gone to that before. Uh, so there's maybe a little more sensitivity around cost and so on and so forth. But you know, am I still traveling almost every week for business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ron, thanks very much. Have a great week, uh, great weekend, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. You bet. Yeah, uh, thanks. Richard, uh, jump in really quick and and give us your uh, sense on what that travel outlook looks like. Uh, and then, uh, Sash, I'll be to you in a second to get your sense on that, but also go to, to European earnings. But just to pull on that thread, as our resident uh, commercial uh, aviation and air traffic analyst, uh, Richard, what do you what do you make of some of these trends? Yeah, you know, I'm just, first of all, there's the aerodynamic view, which I think may well be correct, which is that one third of business travel is non-customer facing, and that to some degree, varying degrees, is at risk. That sounds smart to me. From my own personal perspective, point number two, oh, God, no, there's no slowdown. It's, you know, come back exactly what it was. Uh, having said that, really good point by Ron about China and associated travel being dragged down a bit um, in the North Pacific, and you're seeing that in the numbers. I, I like numbers. You know, <laughs> you can you can verify that no. with numbers. No, you know, it's, uh, the plural of uh, as uh, I believe Brother JJ Gertler is fond of saying, the plural of anecdote is not data, and uh, the, the data here clearly <laughs> speaks to uh, to 
to that anecdote. So it, it, it totally works for me. Having said that, just a bunch of, you know, as Dwight Eisenhower said, I want to meet a one-handed economist. On the other hand, you know, just, just give me a one-handed economist who doesn't say that. Uh, but, You're really on a roll here. <laughs> I'm going to keep going if you don't stop me. The, uh, you know, okay, final thought. We did send my co-managing director and good friend Kevin Michaels to Singapore, and uh, I gather he had a pretty good show and saw lots of folks right. there who mattered. So maybe, maybe there are signs of it coming back. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe from your God uh, mouth to God's ears. Uh, Sash, uh, your sense on the broader travel picture, but also uh, give us kind of a walkthrough uh, on, on European earnings uh, as well. Uh, and I want to ask uh, about uh, Hungary's uh, decision to finally buy those CDs that it's been leasing uh, for the longest time. I think everybody is looking at that for those 18 airplanes as a sign that Budapest is finally going to approve uh, Sweden's entry into NATO. But we've got a lot to cover. Give us your sense on the travel picture and how you think it actually might be changing, because I think it's changing. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I agree. Um, I, th I think it's changing. Look, personally, we don't fly long haul as much as we used to because it's just incredibly expensive. It is more expensive now, uh, you know, relative to anything you want than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, and if that's the case, you, you think once, you think twice, you think thrice before you actually book that trip. That trip's really got to be worth it. Air shows are a fascinating example, though. I mean, the reason why we didn't go to either, uh, you know, we don't go to Dubai, we don't go to IDEX, we don't go to Singapore anymore, is their, their second stroke, third tier shows. Not a lot happened. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm sure Kevin uh, met some really, really good, interesting people here, and that was good for his business. But these are not shows that now shape how uh, our industry, um, you know, moves. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the big picture. I would love to go to Zhuhai. I think um, that's about the one uh, show outside Europe that, that would be worth going to to understand stuff. There are, you know, have, have to think about that one, frankly. But, you know, minor shows in the Middle East and, um, uh, and the rest of the Asia-Pacific region, uh, you know, lovely to go to, great for photographers, but they're not going to move the needle for, for the stocks we cover anymore. And that's a, a remarkable change over five, ten years. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it, and I don't see that turning back anytime soon. So, I mean, on to results now. I mean, the most interesting results this week, um, the two big UK companies, Rolls-Royce BA Systems, uh, reported. Uh, they, were both, they were both good, but Rolls-Royce was very, very, very good indeed. Fascinating thing about Rolls-Royce, um, their civil aerospace, civil aero engine business, moved from a you know has moved from making a two and a half billion pound loss in 2020 to 850 million of profit uh in 2023 and even an even bigger shift in terms of free of free cash flow from that division actually though the the two divisions that absolutely smashed our forecasts were their power business uh and their defense business which would suggest to us that uh, you know, the new management team under Tufan Eggenbillic is actually really having an effect. Civil Aerospace was always going to recover at Rolls. Nothing any CEO can really do about that. It was on rails. It was a purely a function of flight hours. They were going to come back at some stage. But actually, turning around power and defence, kudos. That's that's impressive. Um, so, you know, Rolls-Royce was a very, a very good story. And as Ron said, you know, that was classic aftermarket coming through. Um Look at BA Systems. BA Systems was good. It just wasn't in the league of um, uh, of Rolls Royce. It's a slightly slower burn business, but it had uh, you know record order intake, book to bill, um, 
you know, 1.7 times. Um, and they reckon they can have a booked bill of 1.5 times this year as well. This is a defence company, for heaven's sake. Defence companies are supposed to grow in high single digits. Well, BA Systems isn't at the moment. Um, you know, this order intake is is really deeply impressive. And it's across uh, the whole of the business. So, you know, submarines, surface ships, um, armoured vehicles on both sides of the Atlantic, combat air, uh, you know, very, very good performance. Of the big European defence primes, um, BA has been the strongest uh, demonstrated performer uh, so far uh, in terms of order intake and in terms of profitability. Um, two other stocks, though, uh, in, you know, both in Germany, had a much harder week. Uh, MTU Aero Engines, which you remember got dragged down by the whole Pratt & Whitney Gear turbofan um, debacle last year, and they cut their dividend. Uh, they've looked at the numbers, they've looked at the cash flow, and they said, we're just not going to generate enough cash for um, you know, either in 2023 or into 24, 25, 26. They can't afford the dividend that they paid in 2022, and so they're going to cut it. And I think you know, what this really shows us is that the gear turbofan problem is not over. Uh, the cash costs of that program are going to be pretty much what Pratt & Whitney said they were going to be in the first instance. They don't seem to have found a way of ameliorating those costs. And it's a, it's a two and a half year slog to check all those engines, to overhaul them, to replace all the blisks uh, and so forth. And um, that hits everybody, but you know, and we've commented on this before, if you're a subcontract or a partner, so-called, to Pratt & Whitney, you get hit hardest by this. Um, it's very, very interesting that Raytheon Technologies seems to be able to afford share buybacks, but its partners have to cut their dividends. Uh, it really shows where, you know, where they all are on the food chain. So that was pretty tough. Uh, and then Hensoldt, the German defense electronics company, it had, a, had an okay um, uh, full year, but nothing... Uh, anything like as exciting as uh, you know we've talked about with Ryan Tal. And what does this tell us? Just tells us that the radar business, which is a very very good business, but a lot of that work for Eurofighter um, is is medium term, medium cycle, long cycle. It's three five year stuff. I think Hensel will be growing at the end by the at the end of the decade. It'll still keep growing, but it just isn't growing that fast at the moment. So. Um, actually, Hensold had a you know had a fairly poor week. I think an some analysts had hoped that it would be performing as well as Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall is right at the early stage of the cycle. Hensold somewhere in the middle. On Hungary's order uh, of uh, Grippens, what does it mean? And is this sort of one of those uh, little things that indicates uh, that okay, finally Budapest is dropping its opposition uh, to Sweden joining the the alliance or or does this contract materially mean anything? And Richard, I'm going to come back to you in, in just a moment as well uh, to get your take on that. Go ahead. This is real one for, the, for, for reading the tea leaves, um, as we say over here. Uh, Hungary wouldn't be do, you know, wouldn't be thinking of doing this if the, if relations with Sweden were not improving uh, dramatically. And NATO membership is a very, very important part of that. It's also interesting because it suggests that Hungary does not feel that they either can afford or necessarily would, would get the F-35 if they asked for it. Um, uh, and therefore, they, you know, they, they're uh, doubling down on Gripen. Uh, very good news. Oh, I can't remember the last time there was a Gripen order. Um, and, you know, there are now suggestions that not only will um, uh, Hungary, uh, or, you know, order some more, but, but also Brazil and also even possibly the Philippines with whom... Uh, Sweden signed a government-to-government a, a -government, uh, MOU last week. So, uh, you know, Gripen is uh, 
it's an it's an air defense it's an air sovereignty aircraft in terms of its uh, key capabilities there's a subset of countries for whom that is you know exactly what they need uh, and you know hungary wants to be able to defend herself that's why, that, why that's why she's ordering more more gripens it would certainly be great if this removes the logjam for swedish nato membership and and certainly hope that that's the case uh, because it's important to get sweden into the alliance and 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 all of this uh, petty mechanics uh, out of the way as quickly as possible. Um, Richard, uh, what does this order, if anything, I mean, what does this mean for Saab's broader prospects from from your perspective? Yeah, you know, obviously putting aside the issue of whether anyone really trusts, uh, you know, Viktor Orban and uh, his intentions, you know, it is important to get Sweden into the NATO alliance. And it certainly does, I guess, kind of sort of say good things. I think we all have a very high level of respect for Saab and for the Grieben and everything they've accomplished. And maybe NATO membership will help. But, you know, you still have the fundamental problem that this is this program lurches between one and two per month. And fundamentally, there are high costs that go with that. And, uh, you know, you can't help but wonder as the F-16 ramp uh, ramps up, does it do its usual job of keeping up, keeping out all newcomers to the medium weight non F-35 fighter market. Uh, so in other words, certainly good news. Am I expecting anything that elevates this above, uh, you know, again, uh, an average of 12 to 18 per year? Realistically, no, but I wish them all the best. And one last uh, question that I neglected to ask Ron before we left uh, but maybe uh, start with you, uh, Sash. 500 new sanctions by the administration uh, on the Russians. Uh, has that had any market impact yet? And generally, when the United States announces sanctions like this on on Russians, uh, Russian industry and Russian interests, uh, there tends to be uh, Europe uh, and other nations around the world that follow suit. From, from your standpoint, is it too early to gauge the economic impacts and the defense industrial impacts of all of this, in part because we live in one giant sort of semi, more than somewhat interconnected uh, financial and industrial system? My personal view, no, it's exactly the right time to judge it and the effect will be zero. We're not, we're not going to defeat Russia uh, in Ukraine through sanctions. The sanction, sanctions just don't work very well. The Russians will, are finding and will find workarounds. Sanctions on individuals are gesture politics. End of. Um, you know, we just. I cannot remember when we've ever had a question from an investor about it. And investors are right. Richard, on the sanctions and uh, takeaways from uh, the Singapore Air Show, where uh, apparently Kevin had a great show. By the way, I've always had a great show in Singapore, <laughs> even if really not all that much uh, was 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 going on. I at the last minute decided not to go, as as you guys know. Go ahead. There's always the chili crab and tiger beer that, that rescues you from. The, I, I'm the more of a chicken rice man, but okay, chicken rice I, always I, good. Anything yeah. but the humidity. That's the only thing you don't go for. Uh, but Indeed. you know, obviously, complete agreement with uh, with Sash on the sanctions. I'd I'd like to believe, but no. Um, in terms of Singapore, you know, obviously good wide body order activity with the usual caveat that there's an awful lot of double counting going out on out there in terms of international traffic. Uh, Boeing and GE had a pretty good show. Um, also, it's kind of interesting. It was the first show that the Japanese Ministry of Defense showed up um, for international exports. That was really interesting because if you were preparing the ground for a future where you were part of an export-oriented fighter program like GCAP, Stroke Tempest, Stroke F3, 
this is the sort of thing you'd want to do to get it out there and say, hey, we are no longer, you know, just building stuff for the Japanese market or prohibited even from talking about defense. But we are, in fact, even exhibiting at international, you know, uh, weapons and aerospace shows. So that was kind of a, a noteworthy uh, addition to the show. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Great uh, week. Look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Uh, and a reminder to our audience to check out our award winning weekly podcasts. Uh, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our own Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, uh, and uh, our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our own JJ Gertler. Please tune in tomorrow for our Look Ahead segment with Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners. Until then, have a great day, and we'll see you again soon.